what's good about it is it doesn't matter that you're not growing because you're in your 50s. And the thing about your 50s is you have power. And the reason you have power in your 50s is all your clients are always your age. So all those people you grew up with, they're in their 50s too, and they've got power, so they can actually give, give you some decent work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. Design Matters is on summer break, and we'll be back with a new season in the fall. In the meantime, we're sharing some of the live interviews Debbie has recently done in front of an audience. This one with designer Paula Scher took place in January 2018 in Atlanta as part of an AIGA conference. Here's Debbie Millman, live with Paula Scher. I want to start by, by sharing something with you. My friend Jane Dorn, who is in the audience, um, she reminded me this morning um, that the last time you and I had a Design Matters interview, um, you were naked. That's true. So, so. I was naked on the radio. <laughs> and it was an accident, but I was, and I have to tell you, it was fantastic. <laughs> So, so, so you were naked, but now, now not, unfortunately, for, for all of us. Um, so, so I understand, Paula, that your earliest childhood memory is sitting in your grandmother's kitchen in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and playing with cereal and singing the Howdy Doody song. You were about two and a half. What made that so memorable for you? You know, it's interesting. I was back there um, to this house in Brooklyn that is now worth a fortune. I don't know who lives there, but they're, they're really lucky. It's a brownstone. And I remember um, the terrain of it, that if you go back to your childhood, you have very instant early memories that have to do with where you were sitting and how a room looked and how you felt moving something around. And, you know, to me, it's all visceral. Like, I mean, I couldn't talk yet. I mean, I could sing Howdy Doody, but, I, you know, I couldn't have a conversation with you. But, but it, it becomes very vivid, and there are, it has to do with sense of place, I think. Now, you were born in Washington, D.C. From there, your family moved to Arlington, Virginia, then to Fairfax County, Virginia, then to Silver Spring, Maryland, where you went to elementary school. Now, I, I don't want to start off too dark, but in an interview with Tina Essmaker, you revealed that you had a pretty unhappy childhood, and you used drawing as a reason to go off into your room to be alone. Talk about your childhood a little bit. Well, I think that the period that I grew up in was a fairly oppressive period. It was the 50s. Uh, it was sub the suburbs. Uh, it was about conformity, uh, though at the point that I was miserable, I didn't even know I wasn't even conforming. I was too young. But, but there was, there, I felt like there was something off about me within the milieu that I lived. It didn't feel, it didn't feel right. And uh, drawing was a way of hiding. How did it help you hide? Well, it took up my, I didn't get in trouble. You know, I'd be, I'd be in my room drawing. That was sort of a useful activity. It wasn't something terrible. I wasn't ruining anything in the house or jumping around. Uh, it was fairly quiet. And um, I got good at it. And I understand that's part of why you paint today. It allows, it allows you to escape and you feel better afterwards. But when you feel better, you tend then not to draw. That's right. <laughs> it's sort of a cycle. It's a vicious cycle of, of, of working to feel better to not have to do it. And then I do it. 
because I feel bad. Right. Now, when you were in high school, you took weekend art classes at the Corcoran College of Art and Design, but I read that you kept that to yourself because it wasn't a cool thing to do. No, it was very uncool. What was uncool about it? Well, on Saturdays, you're supposed to go to the football game. You know, you're supposed to you're supposed to get in the car and go to the football game, and and if you're really cool, you're a cheerleader. And I didn't do any of that. I went downtown to Washington D.C. and um, I made paintings with people that I think at the time were beatniks who would later became hippies, and I thought that that was amazing. When you became the school publicity chairman and made all the posters for the school dances and events, that changed everything. Well, that was cool. You said as a child that you failed at everything but art. First you were too scrawny, then you were too fat, then your hair, you didn't think your hair was ever right, and you were never popular. But being the school artist was the first place that you felt like you actually belonged. Is that where you feel like you belong now as an artist and as a designer? Do you feel just in general that you belong now? Well, I think it was... You know, I had this teacher at high school named Mr. Tucker, and he had a he had a um, a glass window outside the art room, and he had a little sign over it that said "Picture of the Week," and and I used to get Picture of the Week a lot, and that was like a really big confidence builder. You know that you know Picture of the Week was that was hot stuff, and that that made me feel secure. You know, so it's it's not very different from getting something in an AIGA competition, is it? Really, you know, I mean, it's sort of the same. In some the ways, same it's thing. better. Oh, picture of the week was was really hot. It was, it was it was great. What kind of pictures? One picture of the week. Oh, they were just terrible. You know, <laughs> you know, fake Cezannes, really bad Degas drawings of you know terribly drawn ballerinas. Whatever you draw when you're about in eighth grade. You went to college thinking you were going to be a painter. Right. Um, but you, because you felt that you couldn't really draw, you tried other things. You you found you couldn't throw pots. You knocked your finger out of, a, out of joint taking a metals class. You rolled your finger through a printing press. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> but in your junior year, you discovered graphic design. How and when did that happen? I had um, a terrific teacher, and I, I, uh, I really entered the class to be an illustrator, because it was illustration and graphic design in the same class, and then um, was very frustrated by typography. But the class itself was about ideas. It wasn't, it wasn't really about craft. And uh, if you could express something, then it was very praiseworthy. So that gave me tr tremendous confidence. I was terrible at typography then, though. Until one of your professors told you to paint with type. He said, illustrate with illustrate type. Illustrate with type. I couldn't marry illustration and typography. It didn't make any sense to me. And like I, I felt that the technology of the time was press type. I used to buy a hunk of press type and rub the typography down on the paper. And there was a common face we all used called Helvetica. And it never went with anything I was using, and it looked terrible. And then he said, illustrate with type. And I began drawing the type. And that's when I started to realize that type had character. But you also had one design teacher who told you, and I never heard this story, I just found this in, in my latest research, you had one design teacher who told you that you showed no promise as a designer at all and questioned why you were even there in the program. That was first year. 
And, and later, years later, he invited you to talk to one of his classes and introduced you by saying, this is one of my former students, and I could take no credit whatsoever for her success. Absolutely true. <laughs> Bob Stein. I, I have such a hard time imagining teachers telling someone they have absolutely no talent and they should just give something up. He said, he said to me, um, I remember, uh, he said to me, why are you here? And I said, I want to be an artist. And he said, cooking is an art. <gasps> Literally. <laughs> and where is he now? <laughs> After graduating from Tyler in 1970, and you moved to New York City. Now, these are, these are I, I, in some ways, I feel kind of bad, because with all the accolades, I'm now talking about sort of all, all of the obstacles. But this is another true story. After graduating in 1970, you moved to New York City with your portfolio and $50. Your portfolio and $50. And when you told your mother you were going to do this, she said, oh, Paula, don't do anything like that. That sounds like it takes talent. <laughs> And your dad, your dad thought an art career was nonsense and hated your 60s lifestyle of what he called sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> How did you survive this? Stronger. <laughs> that, that stuff makes you strong, actually. Um, no, they were, you know, my father would say years later that the first person he ever saw in a miniskirt was me. You know, and like, I, you know, that had to be rough. That had to be rough. <laughs> <laughs> you have great legs. You have great legs. What are you talking about? No, so between your parents' skepticism, your parents' skepticism, and the criticism of your teachers over and over, what gave you the sense that you could do this, that you could be successful, that you could go to New York City with a portfolio and $50? Well, I wanted to do it, and I didn't see any really good alternatives. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that, that at a certain point, you do it, because if you don't do it, you're going to be doing something you don't want to be doing. I mean, I, I, I still feel that way. I feel that if something is difficult, but it's what you want to do, you have to confront it and try to do it, because the rest of your life you'll regret not having done it. Why do that? So how did you first, when you first got to New York with the $50, how did you make your way? I know that you got a job at CBS, but it wasn't a design no. job at CBS. No, I had a design job at CBS. It was a promotion in, in no. the promotion department, no? No, it was, it was design. I was designing crappy ads. Right. You know, I was designing these, these, these crappy ads. And the, this is where I learned everything I learned about business. Like, I used to design these ads, and they would, you would do a layout. And the layout, there, was a, there was something called a traffic manager, and the traffic manager would route the layout around to all these various approvals in the, in the organization. And I would work with a copywriter, and I would lay out an ad, and the ad would, would go to the first person, the first person would send it back for changes, then we'd make changes, and then the ad would route again, and would go back to the second person who had to see it, and that person would make some changes, and would come back again, and you'd change it again, and then the day would be over. And then, then it would be the next day. And then you go and you do the same thing three times. And then on the last day, because these were ads that went into what were known as trade magazines for, for records. It was Cashbox and Billboard. And that's, that's, I was laying out little ads that did that. And on the third day, all the ads went right through because you were out of time. 
which meant it just made more sense not, do, not to do the ads till Wednesday, because <laughs> they'd be out of time. That would be, you know, I began to learn how corporations worked from doing this. And it was, I, I really learned a lot in that experience. Your very first job at a school was working in children's books. That's so. right. So That's how right. did you get that job? Um, I, I went around. I mean, I, I, I was walking around with my portfolio, and somebody needed an assistant. It didn't pay much, and I got the job. And uh, then the man who hired me uh, quit, and I inherited another boss who happened to be a man named Herb Levitt, who's Mark Levitt's dad, by the way. And Herb uh, first thought I was awful and sloppy. Scared? You? Absolutely. <laughs> Scared me, uh, made me better. Um, and then we became close friends. And when he left, he was going back to advertising, and he's, he's, he thought that would not be good for me. And he is the one who actually got me the job at the CBS Records Promotion Department, which is how I got into the music business. Now, I read that you said that working in the promotion department, though, was like working in the cootie department. Yeah, it was and the cootie department of CBS. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like the lowest form of graphic designer. You, I mean, you, you couldn't... You know, people in the cover department didn't talk to you. I mean, you were just beneath their, their contempt. <laughs> How did you end up getting promoted then to the record cover department? Uh, I didn't. I, um, I actually was designing ads, and I got good at them. And the art director of Atlantic Records, who was a guy named Bob Deffrin, um, saw a couple ads I did, and he called me up and asked me if I wanted to work there. And he offered me more money. And the the advertising department and the cover department in Atlantic were the same department. So if I went to Atlantic, it meant I could design record covers. So I went to Atlantic Records, and I designed 25 record covers that year, and then I was hired back to CBS to be East Coast Art Director of Covers. So you could do it. You have to, to not be a cootie, you have to walk around the block. And then when you come back, you're not a cootie anymore. <laughs> Now, if there was anything that was tweetable, it is that. <laughs> for the next 10 years, you worked at CBS and was responsible for nearly 100. Ooh, are you okay? I'm okay. The chair isn't. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So, for the next 10 years, you worked at CBS and you did. You created 150 covers a year. Right. You've said that one of the most important things you learned while working in the music industry was how to present your work and how you learned very early on how to explain your work to others and how to get people to appreciate what you were doing. But you also said that you weren't really comfortable with famous people, and at the time, they mostly treated you like a hairdresser. How were you <laughs> able to persuade them to choose the work you wanted them to choose even while they might have been perceiving you as someone that was akin to a hairdresser? Well, the ones who were treating me like a hairdresser really got what they deserved. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, that the, the recording artists had contractual cover approval. So a lot of the work that you did were for, for rock and roll bands that came in, and they wanted to be shot by... ABC photographer, and they wanted a stylist, and they wanted makeup, and they wanted this, that, and the other thing, and you were really facilitating that and setting it up. And, you know, I, that's not a great job. 
Um, I never really enjoyed that form of art direction at all. And then there were others where you had more interaction with them and the, the thing was more creative and sometimes you had total control. Uh, it really depended upon who the recording artist was. You know, the pop, the pop stars were rough and I used to, you know, be very accommodating because that was, that's what I did for the company. And then there'd be a jazz artist or somebody who was dropped from the, the label and there was a reissue. And I would have control over the work, and that was where I did my good work. I would think, you know, of the 150 covers I did a year, maybe five were really good. You know, that, that you, you were sort of learning the craft, and, and some of it was, you know, playing the numbers with it, with it. But I figured out how I could make what I wanted to make and how I could also be effective in my job. You, you said if you couldn't sell your work, then you couldn't get it made. That's right. What advice would you give to young people to help them develop the ability to explain and defend and promote their work? You have to be in the position to be doing it. Um, and that I fear that very often young people really don't have that opportunity because they're working for somebody else and they don't really have, have the opportunity to learn how to defend and talk about it. But they can learn, if they're working from somebody who does it very well, they can pick up a lot that way and maybe when they have interactive interactions with their clients, they can begin to defend and explain why something is terrific and why it shouldn't be changed and, and, and why that's good for that client. When you were working in record covers, you were working with jazz artists, with folk artists, with punk artists. Did you have a similar approach to working for somebody like Elvis Costello, to working with a band like Cheap Trick, to working on jazz covers for Charles Mingus? Um, no, they're entirely different. I mean, Cheap Trick was interesting because I, I designed a logo for them that they use continually, so I did about five co covers for them, and I got a call from um, somebody who's publishing a book called 33 and a Third, where each book is about one record, which was actually, one of them was Cheap Trick's first album, and they reminded me that I hand-wrote all the liner notes for these guys. I frankly didn't remember that I had done it till they brought it up on the phone, and I remember that there were things that you brought to that sort of production that became personal to those, those artists. But I didn't think anything about it when I was doing it. It was just something I gave away because I was working with them and it was fun. You said that you think you did just a few good album covers a year while you were doing this work. But there are album covers now that are classics that you hate. <laughs> yes. So, how do you reconcile that? How, how do you accept the? She's referring to the Boston cover, which I can't. <laughs> I was doing my very best not to actually say Boston cover, but yes. Now I was talking about that with with the students this afternoon. That that the Boston cover is designed, I think, with 1976. How many years ago is that? A long time ago. It's like almost 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, that the idea that people actually know what it is to me is amazing. And that, that in retrospect, I realize how much we all get to contribute to the culture. And we don't really think about it, you know, because, because the profession isn't really about the intent of doing that. It's more about the, the joy and the discovery of pushing something or making something that might be new that might have the effect. But once you've made it, you forget about it. You're on to the next thing. So the idea that something hangs around that long, to me, is sort of magical. 
I mean, I, I, I know, I remember, I remember doing it. I know the person I was when those things happened, but so much transpired afterwards that you just let that go. You used a word today to describe something else that I actually think can describe things like the cheap trick liner notes or the Boston cover. You used the word materiality. And I remember looking at that Boston cover, I think I was a senior in high school, and I was mesmerized. And I remember staring at it and staring at it and trying to understand it. And there's so much about your work that still feels like you want to look at it, you want to examine it, you want to make every effort to understand it. Is that something that you realize? Uh, sometimes. I'm not with the Boston cover. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the Boston cover is about something else. I think that, that we, but the Boston cover predated the movie Star Wars by one year. And I think we hit a zeitgeist, which is accidental. That sometimes you design something or you make something and you automatically discover something in the nerve of the time and you can't, you can't bank on that. That, that is, I mean, the audience that liked that were 16-year-olds and I was 26. I had no relationship to them. I don't know why they liked it. I thought they were crazy. <laughs> and that, that, but there was something else in that time because I looked at the Star Wars graphics for, for you know, the Lucas movie only a year later and you'll see the relationship. It wasn't that they were copying that. It was that there was something in the air about this thing. About so when you did it, though, did you think, eh? Yeah. You That's did. <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. I'm I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm I'm really shocked because I I mean especially when you have the experience of participating in something the way I did in that it felt so intentional and so I'm vibrant sorry. and otherworldly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to get us on stage to hear this apology, right? Okay, talk about meeting David Bowie. I read that you said that meeting David Bowie, when you met David Bowie, you realized you'd met the most beautiful man you'd ever seen. He was. He was, he was, like, he was this little man in a perfect suit standing in my doorway. And I, 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 I've never seen anything like that. I, they used to bring um, uh, recording artists, if they were going to sign to the label, they'd bring them down to the art department because the art department had a really good reputation and, and they'd be introduced to us or sometimes I would take them around. And some of the, some of the stars were jaw-dropping. I mean, they were just, just stunning. And then others were not. In 1982, you took a very big risk and you left this amazing job at CBS to go out on your own. What made you decide to do that? That's a big risk. Well, first of all, the record industry was going down. Um, CDs had sort of entered the... Just barely, though. At that point, I think we were still kind of wondering if they no, were going to No, we were to be... already making them. They were, they were going into this plastic container right. that uh, was called a jewel box. And people perceived that the, the, the technology of the CDs was more sensitive because of, because of the way it looked than, a, than vinyl, when, when really the reverse was true, and vinyl was always in cardboard. But this, this sort of plastic jewel box with a slip-in piece of paper was not great. So that was one thing. Another thing was that for three years, the, the record industry, after one year being better than the next, sort of tanked. So there were, there were mass layoffs, and it was not a very pleasant place to be. But the real reason that I left was I wanted to make something that wasn't square. 
And so in order to do that, you needed to go out on your own. What happened was I wanted to be a magazine art director, but I couldn't, I couldn't get a job as a magazine art director because I didn't have any magazine experience. So you wanted to go from making something square to something rectangle? With <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make something that had pages that turned, you know, but I wanted to do something that was more than this, this, this flat, you know, 12 and a half by 12 and a half piece of paper. And the, 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 the thing was that you, you, could, you cannot jump professions if you have a certain area of expertise. So I would have to go down and be an assistant art director. I would have had to be somebody's assistant art director after actually making all this stuff and running a department. And I didn't want to do it. So I thought the only way to do it was to go on my own, which I did. And uh, shortly after I did that, I got hired by Time Inc. to develop two magazines in-house, but they wouldn't have hired me as an art director, I had to come in on a contract, which was over in a year anyway. And then, then I started a business with Terry Coppell. Do you think the business is different now? Do you think that it's easier for people to do a lot of different things? I'm not sure that's true. I think that the design firms are generalists, and the people that come out of the design firms are generalists. But most people are hired based on where they were before and what their job title was before. This is the tragedy of the industry. So that it's hard for somebody to get a broad stroke of experience without, say, working at Pentagram or working at, uh, uh, for Stephen Doyle or, or that sort of thing in New York. I mean, most people are in companies or they're working for magazines. They're doing, one, they're doing you know, sort of the same thing over and over again because that's what the place is. I find, though, that designers are required to have so many more skills, coding, retouching, being That's able... going away. You think Don't so? learn retouching. <laughs> the artificial intelligence can do it. Just don't even waste your time. Really? Really. What's coming? <laughs> That's the new software programs. There are software programs where what's scary about it is that um, clients will actually get a hold of things and accomplish all this thing and think that they can buy stock shops and just retouch them because you can make a command into it and the... Uh, the artificial intelligence does it automatically. Okay, well, let's, let's go down to an even more darker place. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you started this company with your old friend from school, Terry right. Coppell. Right. He was a magazine designer in your studio. Coppell and Cher was a balance of editorial design and promotion packaging and record covers. Um, you worked together for seven years, right. but he left to go to work at Esquire, and you were on your own again. You, you sort of took over the whole company. You started doing... Well, I took over all the debt. All the debt. And, and you said that the late 80s were the nadir of your design life. Was it because of the debt? No. No. Um, this, is, this is interesting. Um, I was actually... We were. I have to say, we were hot when we, we started our business. You know, like I was out of the music business and uh, we started getting all this youth-oriented work. Um, we did the first promotions in the United States for, for Swatch Watch. I did an identity for Manhattan Records and we got the whole label to do. I grew to 17 people. Um, Terry got a magazine called European Travel and Life that was sort of a, an expensive lifestyle magazine. And the opposite of being hot is being cold. And that if you almost soar too fast, I think when you're young, you also crash land. Because I began getting criticized for my work. Like the, they were, it was called uh, retro, 
It was um, bad postmodernism. There was the criticism for the Swatch Watch poster. I mean, all of this happened in the late 80s. And it was also a horrible economy. Um, at the, the reason Terry left was because he was a magazine designer. And during the, Gulf, the first Gulf War, the, the magazines almost stopped being published. I mean, there was, there was just no work. Um, so he, he went in, he took a, a staff job, and uh, I ran the studio. The, the, Swatch, the Swatch Watch work that you did is articulated beautifully in, in this extraordinary new book uh, by Unit Editions called Paula Share Works. Um, despite getting permission from Herbert Matters' estate um, to be able to use an image that was something that he had created, you were... Um, you were really maligned in the press for what they, what people thought was was theft or plagiarism, mm-hmm. when in fact it wasn't. It was an homage. It was it something was also intentional, it was right and it was credited. Um, why do you think that that you were so bullied at that time? I'm not totally sure. Um, I think that it was it was an easy target. What was odd about the uh, um, the attacks was that the poster itself that was re- receiving all the 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 brouhaha really was uh, the attack started in about 1989. The poster was designed in 1984, so it's five like years it, later. It was five years later, so it seemed like a real delay in it. And it was some of it was calculated. I mean, some of it was Tibor, um, and it was Tibor Kelman for people that might not be aware. He, he, he spoke was, about he, the poster at a conference in a, in a very negative way, and it sort of brought this whole thing to light. Um, he later apologized, right? Yeah. yeah. We were friends, actually. Yeah. Um, we, we had been, uh, he'd been somebody I knew in the record industry. But, you know, it, it, at the time it happened, um, I was devastated. It was horrible. I mean, I, I, really, I really didn't know what to make of it. And at that point... Um, Woody Pirtle came around and asked me to join Pentagram. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's a real opportunity. And a part of me thought, oh, I'm going to lose my independence. And I really didn't know what to do. And then I thought it would be great to have a big group of guys protect me from mean people attacking me. <laughs> and and I, I have to say, I joined Pentagram, and it totally stopped. It completely stopped. You joined in 1991, and everything, the, from the minute you, from, and this is a quote in the book, from the minute you joined Pentagram, the negative press and anti-postmodernism attacks stopped. Totally. Isn't that amazing? Nothing like a football team. Right. But, but, put, put, bring the mic up a little bit closer. Okay, so okay, okay. So, sort of, but I hello. read that when you first started, even working at Pentagram was difficult. You had to contend with a lot of male egotism, and you were isolated. You were in your early 40s. You had no children, and most of your women friends were juggling careers and babies as you were trying to exist and compete with 15 men. What made you stay? Um, three projects. Uh, in... Uh, uh, I think it was, I joined in 1991. I remember 91 and 92 were, were really, really, really hard for me. Um, and then in 93, I um, got a call to uh, work on um, the American Museum of Natural History, which was a, a big identity project. Then, almost directly after that, uh, Janet Froelich asked me to redesign the New York Times magazine. 
And then I got a call from the public theater. And they all happened in the same year. The calls were all for me. I would have gotten the calls at Coppell and Cher. They were the same, they were the same call. It wasn't for the Pentagram partners. But I, I got the jobs at Pentagram. I don't think I would have gotten the jobs as a single woman alone in my own business. They were too big. And it changed everything. And uh, it made me have a lot of confidence. And uh, they were visible. And it got much easier after that. Do you think that your male partners perceived you differently getting those three jobs in a row? Well, a few of them are pissed off. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so nowadays you balance three major things at Pentagram. Getting business, doing business, and educating. So can you talk a little bit about the getting business and doing business part? How much time do you spend actually having to get business? I would imagine that there's calls coming in all day long asking for Paula Share to design work for numerous organizations all over the world. Sometimes, but not always. And, and uh, part of what we do is the way we get work, because we don't... Um, we don't have a new business person who goes out and finds work for us. We don't, there's nobody who makes cold calls. There's no, you know, we, we essentially get work by being visible. And so being visible means doing things like this. Uh, it means um, becoming active in certain parts of the profession or, you know, joining a board or um, donating something as a, you know, as a service because, because of the relationship. I mean, all of those things... Um, are part of getting business. And so it's about the profile. And you spend time on that. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it because it's all part and parcel of that, of that thing. Then there's the doing of the work, which, you know, after you get it, you got to do it. That takes up time. And what was the third thing? Educating. Well, we all teach. And we're teaching our, our students and we're teaching our clients. And that's what we're doing. You have been celebrated for a long time as the world's greatest female graphic designer. Isn't that insulting? What does that make you? Are you number 15? I mean, like, what is the, what rank is that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my partners don't put up with that. The guys, I don't hear them say, oh, this is his terrific designer. He doesn't say, oh, the, the greatest male graphic designer? I've never heard anybody The greatest white male it. graphic designer? Who is that? But... But so, so this, this, this book, this new book, I got it. I tore it open. I started reading it. I couldn't stop. And when I came to the end, and I, I, I believe I either texted this to you or I wrote an email to you, and I said, forget this female graphic designer thing, Paula. This book shows that you are the most accomplished graphic designer working today. And it does. I don't know even how you would rate that. But the idea that you took the sex off of it is great. <laughs> it is a gorgeous book. I want to talk to you about some of the things that you talked to Adrian Shaughnessy about. The book has quite a lot of, I mean, it's a wonderful monograph, 
takes you all through Paula's life as a designer, as a person, but it also has a number of different interviews. And I learned so many wonderful things about you in those interviews. And I wanted to talk to you about a few of the things that Adrian brings up. And so he says this about you. Paula shares unwillingness to accept woolly thinking and lazy group think extends to clients, where other designers, either through timidity or fear of commercial consequences, are reluctant to challenge clients' edicts. Cher says what she thinks, but she does it in a way that most of her clients appear to find acceptable. So how do you do that? Because you are somebody that really does always tell the truth. So how do you do that in a way that your clients are mostly always finding acceptable? It has to do with the relationship. I mean that when I'm working with somebody, I'm, my expectation of the relationship is that they hired me to help them do the best possible job for them. And that if they believe that I'm capable of doing that, that we have to be able to have an open dialogue. So if the thing based on whatever the politics of the situation are, or whatever the finances of the situation are, is going south, I will, I will push them and challenge them to get it right. Sometimes in the middle of an identity project, they may have bought the identity and then they get sloppy on the lower, ends, on the lower end pieces and somebody inside who is on a lower level wanted to do thus and such because they always did that and so to be nice to them they say okay and they call up and they make the change and they compromise the piece and I'll yell at them. I'll say you can't <laughs> do that, that's terrible, you're ruining this thing. And that, that, that's my job and that there's no reason for them not to get that from me because if I, I, would, I would just be lazy not doing it. It's easier not to respond to it and say oh nobody's going to see that piece, who cares, except for I think somebody will see it. What do you do when you feel that the design is being compromised? Do you, and, and they're unwilling to make a change or they're questioning whether something is the right thing to do. How do you persuade them to do the right thing? Well, there isn't really right and wrong in, uh, in anything. There's only better and worse. And that you can, in most of the design conversations, before we've even selected the identity, we've gone through a period where they've looked at a lot of experiments. So they'll see four to six things sometimes, and there are variable differences between them that they understand, and they've, they've, when they come to the commitment about what the design is, it's, it's a give and take process. Nothing is thrown or forced down them, but they understand the logic and, and the pros and cons of each one. I would never show anybody something that I wouldn't think would be viable if they picked it, because that would be terrible for me. So that within the choices, we're having a dialogue about what is most appropriate for them. And that is going to be still at a level that is going to improve and give them the things they want to have happen. So that you've already established that relationship. So there's no point in, in being indirect about it, because you've already done that in the very beginning of it. And that becomes the relationship. When that isn't the relationship, the thing fails. And then there's really no point in continuing because I'll be frustrated and they'll be frustrated. So sometimes we cut after the first phase because we can tell we just can't stand each other and they should go away and live and be well someplace else. <laughs> when somebody asks you to do something that you're not, in, you're not really sure is going to work, um, do you do it anyway to show them or do you try to squiggle out of it? Both. If I, if I know that they'll know it isn't going to work, I'll show them. 
If I'm not sure they're going to know, I don't show them. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Adrian, Adrian goes on to say something else. He says, you don't have to spend long in Paula's company to discover that she has a sharp sense of humor, often wickedly scatological, and a personal radar system that is finely attuned to picking up the imperfections, kinks, and idiocies of human beings. Where does this come from? My parents. <laughs> <laughs> so all of that, that um, all of those obstacles they put in your way, yeah? Mm -hmm. One last remark from works by Adrian. Paula shares critics, look at some of her work, Shake Shack's identity, her long-lived Citibank logo, or her apparently neutral Microsoft work, and see only mainstream commercial design. It's a charge that Cher, ever the contrarian, accepts, but with qualifications. My question is, what are the qualifications? Well, I don't, that, I have to explain the design community a bit to the audience. Um, there are groups of people who are designers who think that design has to be in the service of some nobler purpose and not for corporate America. I don't agree with that because I think most people, what they confront all day long is corporate America. And I think that a designer's responsibility is to elevate the expectation of what something should be. And for example, I, I'm very proud of my work for Shake Shack because it elevated a whole area of fast food and it for forces McDonald's to do a better job. And I think that that's the role of the designer and that if you're not doing that and you, you have disdain for it, somebody worse will do it and that's what we'll all live with. So I, I just disagree with that opinion totally. One thing that I've quoted you um, on many, many times uh, to clients, to colleagues, is the notion that people don't hire really expensive or accomplished brand designers because of how accomplished they are. It's because they know how to navigate through the politics. And you can do that brilliantly. You often, um, when starting a new project, you turn briefs and the client expectations around 180 degrees. You challenge specific ways of thinking, specific ways of doing things. Do you think it's because of your level of accomplishment that you're able to do that, that clients will accept that from you because of what you've already done in the past? Or have you always done that? I think I got that in the music business. I mean, I think that goes back. I've done, I've done that a long time. I got better at it. Um, and I really don't feel cynical about it. I mean, my goal is to teach somebody how to see, you know, that people come, you know, if I go to the dentist, I don't want to tell the dentist how to fix my tooth. I mean, I think that would be sort of presumptuous. And that I'm just the client's dentist. I mean, my job is to help them make themselves understandable and recognizable to audiences. And I know how to do that. And if they've hired me, I can help them and they can participate and we can, we can work very well together. If they can do it better than me, then they should hire somebody else. In addition to your prolific work as a designer, you're also a painter and you have gallery exhibits and commissions, as Hank said, all over the world. And you've said that time 
and social structure are the main differences between your practices as a designer and as a painter? It's financial structure, actually. Oh, financial structure. Yeah. Um, so what about the time part? Time and social structure or financial structure? Well, the time is it doesn't take very long to design something. And the way I make my paintings, they're very laborious and they take a very long time. And design is done quickly running around uh, with other assistance and help and is highly social. And I paint by myself in a room. So they're very opposite things. The, the major difference, and designers have a hard time with this. They'll, they'll say, my work is art, meaning my work is fine art. And I, they use it as a value judgment. And I don't see it that way. I think that the difference between fine art and design is financial. If you're um, a fine artist, you go wherever you go and you make whatever you're going to make. You determine what you're going to make. And if you're lucky, you stick it in a gallery someplace or you just look at it by yourself. And if you're, if you're a designer, you, you more or less engage with a client and that the, the, there is a, a criteria for it, there's a size for it, there's a materiality that's an expectation, there are a series of set parameters. And design and fine art are not the same act and they're not approached the same way. But they don't require different value judgments. They're terrific pieces of graphic design and they're crappy pieces of fine art and vice versa. And it isn't, it's a measure of nothing it's just different structure of how you're making and performing and acting as a person who makes things. Why maps? Um, they started, you know, my father was a map maker. Yes. And uh, I grew up with maps around the house. He was a scientist, and uh, he um, was correcting lens distortion in aerial photography and invented a device that improved map making. And um, he told me when I was a little kid that maps were distorted that because of the curvature of the earth. But I didn't understand that. I thought that meant maps lied because I thought distortion meant lying. And then later as a graphic designer, and I was editing other people's texts, and I saw that sometimes, you know, whole blocks of copy could be lopped out or text could be distorted by anybody both designing it or editors. I began to become cynical about content of things, and particularly in the information age where there is so much data visualization and you sometimes look at it as a source by itself without actually knowing who the real authors are because somebody is collecting and distributing that data for you to pick up and look at. So I thought, why not my own data? So I paint maps from my perspective and I leave in what I want to put in, and I take out what I don't want to put in, especially if it doesn't fit. <laughs> <laughs> so you edit by size. <laughs> totally. Are there things that you take out for political reasons, or is it primarily? Oh, I, I take it out and I put it in. Yeah? I mean, they're, they're opinionated. Um, some of them are more abstract. Um, I, I can't explain why I do them. I start, I start making them, and they, they, they start to develop content. There, a lot of them are, are hooked to current events. The last show was all paintings of the United States because we were in an election cycle. So it was US demographics and um, zip codes and populations. And right now, I'm working on hurricanes. Oh, We wow. had five of them. You know, when, sort of when, when will those paintings be shown? 
God knows. I moved. <laughs> no, I, I moved my house, so I've been slow. But I'm, I'll be, I'll be, I'm sure in, in a year or two. In one really heartfelt section of works, Adrian Shaughnessy describes a characteristic of yours that he suspects is rarely, if at all, seen by the people you work with. At various points in the making of the book, he shares how you had revealed doubts and uncertainties about your work. Do you still experience insecurity? Of course. Why? Why not? Because. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody does. Do you approach insecurity or the sense of insecurity with any different lens in consideration of your accomplishments? What do you tell yourself when you're feeling insecure? It's time to reinvent. And so then it's time to remake another chapter? It's, time to, time to, it's usually time to find, find another way to do something. So when you're feeling insecure, do you see that as sort of a trigger that you must start doing something else? Well, it's usually, it's usually indicating to me that I'm getting sloppy and lazy and flabby, you know, and I feel bad about something. It isn't, it isn't what I would like it to be. So, you know, it, 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 it's part and, you know, it's like realizing you, that you need a haircut. I mean, it's not that different. (laughs) Well, you can get a trim versus like a mullet. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about your chart, your chart of accomplishment, because I think that Um, it's wonderful, and I think it can be described without needing to see a a visual representation. Okay, I did a, a staircase of a career. I think that design careers, all careers really, are sort of like this surreal staircase, so that when you're in your 20s and you're starting out, the uh, risers are very tall, but the steps are very shallow because you don't know anything yet. So you make a lot of discoveries because you make a lot of discoveries because you don't know anything. And then you get into your 30s and you become a bit of a professional and you're, you're starting to be a solid pro so that the step is a little deeper and the riser is a little more shallow going up to your 40s. And you're still making discoveries, but not to the degree you were in your 20s. By your 40s, you're not only a pro, you're an aging pro so that the step starts to get a lot longer and you find that you're competing with people younger than you for work that you used to get easily and that's very scary and you have to make another jump and you get to your 50s and the riser is very low and the step is, the, the step is very, very wide. And uh, what's good about it is it doesn't matter that you're not growing because you're in your 50s. And the thing about your 50s is you have power. And the reason you have power in your 50s is all your clients are always your age. So all those people you grew up with, they're in their 50s too, and they've got power, so they can actually give, give you some decent work. And all of a sudden, you're capable of doing all this stuff that you may not even have the innovation sensibilities that you had when you were young or the arrogance of it, but you have a lot of knowledge. So you do that very well, and then you hit 60s, and it's really just sort of the 50s extended until the end where you don't know what the hell's going on. (laughs) How perfect is that? And have you ever heard a more succinct reason to look forward to your 50s? (laughs) You state in, in the monograph that you have felt so much of what has happened to you to have been happenstance. Yeah, I do. Why is that? Because, because things happen. There isn't, there isn't, I mean, there, there's your character, there's your fortitude, there's your stick-to-itiveness, there are all those things, okay? They're attributes of your human nature. That's, that's, that's part of me, I admit that. But 
I moved to New York and got a job in the record industry, and that was incredibly lucky. I didn't even know I had a good job. I see interns and people who work for me who don't have the kind of opportunity I had. That's nothing but luck. It was the timing of being there at the right time. Um, when Terry and I started a business, some of it was hard work, some of it was stupid. I mean, we made a lot of stupid mistakes, we spent a lot of money we shouldn't have spent. Um, but I think that we hit the zeitgeist right, at least in the, in the first part of the 80s, and then, then it went south. And then that when Terry left, a year after he left, that where I really didn't know where things were gonna go, the idea that Woody Pirtle would walk over and ask me to join Pentagram, it's not luck in that they were already talking about me and he knew me for a long time and that it wasn't, that wasn't that accidental, but that I was available and was ready to do that at that time was incredibly lucky. I mean, those things are happenstance. They just happened at certain points of time and they worked. The public theater was happenstance. I was ready for it. I wanted that job, but that, I, that job happened at that particular time in my career was amazing. What do you attribute then the longevity of the work that you've been doing for the public theater that is still as good as it was, if not better, than when you first started? I stayed with it. That's me. That I'll take credit for. Okay, but, good. But the way it came about, no. That's, that's, that's luck. What do you envision for your next chapter? Disease and death. <laughs> <laughs> Not if I can help it. I mean, well, you know, get real. I will not accept that as my final answer. <laughs> Give me something to land on that's ever so slightly more optimistic. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually have been incredibly inspired by um, some work I've been seeing in Europe lately that uses typography in spectacular ways, and I, I want to go back and, and do some more of that because it's amazing. Um, it's a great time to be a designer. There's wonderful things around to, to inspire and provoke. And go see the show. It's very inspiring, and Debbie did an amazing job, and I think that everybody would get a lot out of it. And there's an amazing piece by Paula in it. So thank you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for helping to make this world a much better designed place. Thank you. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. 